Hey everybody, welcome to The Lab. This is 538's NBA podcast for the week of November 29th, 2017. My name is Neil Payne. I write about sports for 538. I'll be your host today. And as always, I'm joined by my co-podcasters on the line from Chicago. We've got 538 sports writer Chris Herring. Hey, Chris. What's going on, man? Hey, and in studio, as usual, fellow 538 sports writer Kyle Wagner. What's hey, up? So, you guys have a good uh, good break, good holiday? Yeah, it's good. Went yeah? Home, ate too much. Didn't watch uh, any NBA, as we spoke about last week. So, on today's show... Uh, we're going to shift gears into uh, coaching talk. We're going to talk about the firing of Grizzlies coach David Fisdale. Did he deserve it? What went into it? Also, who else should be worried next on the coaching hot seat? Uh, and then we're going to bring you a small sample on the sudden defensive revival in Portland. But first, let's hit the headlines. So what was left of the 2018 L.A. Clippers season came to a crashing halt on Monday when Blake Griffin sprained his MCL crashing into what first appeared to be Lonzo Ball, at least according to Doc Rivers, but then it became apparent that it was Rivers' son, Austin, uh, that actually crashed into Blake Griffin, putting him on the shelf for up to two months, according to ESPN's Adrian Wojnarowski. Uh, For Griffin, this is going to be the fourth straight season in which he's missed at least 15 games, which puts him in a not very enviable club of constantly injured stars like Gilbert Arenas, Grant Hill, Brandon Roy, Penny Hardaway, Amari Stoudemire, Steve Francis, just to name a few in recent memory. So let's start by talking about Blake Griffin, who the Clippers re-signed to a five-year, $173 million deal just this summer. Is this just the new reality for him, him getting injured, missing a big chunk of uh, the season every single year? I mean, a lot of these things are just bad luck. Like, you can't really control Austin crashing into your leg, but yeah, at a certain point... uh it's hard to say it's just luck when it's just like you're missing games every year. The big difference here is the fact that normally we're used to seeing Blake play when Chris Paul is hurt. And obviously Chris Paul had his injury this year as well. And it gives the Clippers a different look, something that opponents aren't used to. And now this time Blake is kind of their main offense. It's not that they're going from Chris Paul to Blake or from Blake to Chris Paul they don't really have anything else to go to. DeAndre Jordan is is a player that earns a ton of money but is not a guy that is featured on that side of the ball. And so the difference now is that they're not going to really have much to turn to, guys to really jumpstart their offense. The irony is that he's not – their offense can do okay without him, but I don't think it's sustainable for stretches. I think it's more that the ball moves better. But I, I don't really know where they turn right now. I actually think it probably is going to be the – big thing that starts the conversation about how they behave at the trade deadline with a team that clearly is out of contention and what it means for Doc Rivers. Yeah, our ESPN colleague Kevin Pelton in the wake of this injury speculated that this just might kick off trade discussion basically and and kind of a not a fire sale but but players being sold off DeAndre Jordan and Lou Williams are both free agents after the season uh, and so we could see maybe the Clippers biggest influence on the league this season might just be if those guys get traded and where they end up landing uh, at the trade deadline I mean yeah so like DeAndre getting traded like would obviously be big but like that's not just this Blake injury like yeah Blake's gonna miss two months and that sucks because uh, he's the fulcrum of that offense, even though uh, his on-off is uh, actually not great this year. Uh, it's defensive end for that. Uh, but, like, Bev is out for the season with right. injury now. And Gallo has missed more games than he's played at this point, which is, you know, kind of – you kind of have to expect that with Gallinari. Uh, Teodosic hasn't played since the second game of the season. Like, these are people that they were expecting to, like, give them, you know, something for if Blake goes down, if, like, whatever. So 
yeah, Blake is out, but they're just screwed all over with injuries. Right, yeah. It seemed like so much uh, of the whole team's plan going into the season was built on this premise that, well, we lost Chris Paul, but we still have two-thirds of our big three, and if Blake just stays healthy, uh, and like we mentioned earlier, this is part of a pattern, and it's kind of weird. Uh, I think it's interesting that Griffin, he missed his entire first NBA season, right? Then played 308 out of a possible 312 games over the next uh, four seasons, I want to say, and then now he has missed an immense number of games over the subsequent four seasons there. Uh, it's, It's kind of difficult to pin, you know, is it the same injury? It's been the knee a couple times, but then also he's had a toe injury, uh, an elbow injury, a hand injury. Um, and hand I, injury. Right, right, right. That was an off-court hand injury. Um, so, But I think it's really interesting that you know some players just seem to be injury-prone, and even if it's not the same body part that's getting injured the whole time, uh, th- there are players in history that have just missed big chunks of time repeatedly uh, and they don't seem to really ever recover their durability I went through and kind of looked for some of these guys I rattled off a whole bunch of them earlier uh, in the segment and really only a handful of guys that fit that criteria of missing at least 15 games in four straight years uh, at like a non-old age ended up recovering any kind of productivity or durability like Nene was frequently hurt through his late 20s, and he's actually managed to pull it together a little bit uh, over the past five years. Also, I came up with Chris Mullen, Andrew Bogut, and Baron Davis as guys that were injured a lot and then still managed to have a few years in a row. But the list of guys that just didn't ever manage to get back together and stay on the court or be productive from that point onward is a lot longer than the list of guys that managed to you know, recover some kind of value going forward. What makes that interesting, I think, is that most of those guys you just mentioned had another stop or two stops or three stops in a lot of cases because their teams moved on from them because they didn't know if they could count on them to stay healthy. Blake is with the same team he started with. And so a lot of times you look at Derrick Rose or you look at some of these guys that play the majority of their career all in one stop, a lot of times you don't see them turn the corner on their health, Grant Hill, other guys too, until they go to another team. And then another team that has different training practices and has different medical staff maybe finds a different way to kind of rehab those guys or to keep them healthy. And so I wonder now with Blake having just signed such a long deal to stay there and them building their entire franchise around him, one, you might have to kind of alter everything completely uh, depending on how this year ends up and what happens with DeAndre Jordan and the fact that they don't look like they're going anywhere. But two, Blake is locked into such a long deal that he may not ever get that opportunity to go to another stop and see how they would treat him differently with regards to his body. I mean, that gets kind of depressing if we're going to move on already from, like, this was the great Blake Griffin experiment this year. Like, can Blake be the dude that you build a contender around? Like, everything runs through him. Uh, We were excited to see it early in the season. Like, it looked good. Like, then everyone started going down. But... If we are going to move past that, and like this is like he's out for two months, we'll see what he's like when he comes back. He might just be fine. Um, but like the team context, everything else shifting, he is going to be a dude who like when he like goes to a next stop or like just as he ages, like his game's going to age so well. Like he's such a good passer. Like he can shoot. Like he can like move around. Like find space. Like it's he's going like Grant Hill on the Suns. Like you right. Know, I was just Latter-day, thinking yeah, about yeah, yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. Like his game's going to age well. Like whenever he gets to that depressing point that like we stop talking about him as like you know the dude and it'll it'll probably get easier too once you reach a stage with him where he's a dude as opposed to the dude 
playing with other guys where you can fit him in the cap more easily and put him around other players that are good where you're not asking him to do everything for you. You're asking him to do some things for you. And so, like you said, there are elements of his game that should fit really well anywhere, and especially once you consider that instead of being a 25 or $30 million a year player, I think he actually makes more than that. I can't remember what his, his cap number is. But once he isn't costing that much, and in part probably because of injuries at a certain stage, he's going to be great somewhere, and he's probably going to win more and maybe reach the stage he's never reached the conference finals once he once he gets to that next level with another team. It's really early to be talking about that, though. It's kind of depressing, like you said. Yeah, really depressing. Uh, yeah, he's going to make $30 million this season, and it's only going to go up from there. But, uh, yeah, we might have to see the, the new stop for him down the road. We'll be in a post-Doc Rivers Clippers team, uh, but we'll talk about that in the next segment when we talk about coaches on the hot seat. Uh, first, we're going to have a word from our sponsor. Blue Apron is the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country, and its mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. Thanks to Blue Apron, you might have short rib burgers with a hoppy cheddar sauce on a pretzel bun one night, and then seared steaks and thyme pan sauce with mashed potatoes, green beans, and crispy shallots the next, all in under 45 minutes and without a trip to the grocery store. That's because Blue Apron delivers fresh, pre-portioned ingredients and step-by-step recipes right to your door. The menu changes every week based on what's in season and is designed by Blue Apron's in-house culinary team. Blue Apron offers 12 new recipes each week, and customers can pick two, three, or four recipes based on what best fits their schedule. And Blue Apron sends only non-GMO ingredients, containing meat with no added hormones. Some of the best parts of our day happen over dinner. So why not treat yourself to something delicious? And right now, Blue Apron is treating the Labs listeners to $30 of credit on their first dinner if you visit blueapron.com slash the lab. That's T-H-E-L-A-B, one word. So check out this week's menu and get your $30 off today at blueapron.com slash the lab. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. The NBA world was stunned Tuesday with the news that the Memphis Grizzlies had fired their head coach David Fisdale 19 games into his second season at the team's helm. Memphis was in the midst of an eight-game losing streak, and Fisdale stirred up further controversy by benching all-star center Marc Gasol during the fourth quarter of the team's loss to the Brooklyn Nets on Sunday night. But by the same token, just last season, Fisdale led a Memphis team that us at 538 predicted that they would win just 35 games to a 43-win record and a playoff berth. So... Did David Fisdale deserve this fate? What went into this decision, do you guys think? Uh, so the story is that, um, like, it's uh, only the uh, the slide of the team at the end of last season, like, the the start of this season, and, like, there was some tension between him and Marcus All, but, like, you know, whatever. But, I mean, if it goes so far as, like, your GM is, like, admitting that there's something there, then, like, there's got to be much more there. And, like, the stories are that, like, uh, there were some uh, run-ins last year, last season over the summer. It didn't get any better, and so like there was this sense that like it had to be one or two, the two of them. Um, and apparently, they still might trade Marcus All. I've been seeing reports of like executives saying that they still expect that could happen. But I mean, this is also just like what Memphis does. Like they fired Lionel Hollins in 2013 after he went to the conference finals. Or didn't fire him; just didn't pick, pick, pick him back up. Um, they fired Dave Yeager in 2016 after they went to the playoffs. They got swept, but they went to the playoffs, and so like. Fizdale went to the playoffs last year. Like, they lost in the first round again, but, like, that's a team that, like, it's impressive going to the playoffs. So 
I don't know. It's just weird. Like he's been overperforming with this roster. Yeah, I feel like uh, we we talked about certainly the Dave Yeager story happened while I think you and I were were working together at five thirty eight, and we wrote a story about how uh, the the team was actually exceeding expectations at the time of the firing. So yeah, they seem to burn through coaches. Also, a little bit interesting that they pick the thirty two year old center who's kind of declining uh, in in terms of his numbers over a coach that seems to have a lot of respect around the league. For instance. Uh, LeBron James and Dwayne Wade, who had worked with Fisdale in Miami, both tweeted that they were shocked by the news uh, of the firing. And also fellow coaches Steve Kerr, Terry Stotts, and Teron Liu voiced their surprise and disappointment over uh, the decision. Yeah, when you consider this, it's one of those that doesn't make total sense to me when you take into account that if Gasol ends up getting moved, what was the point of this? Was he damaging the culture there so badly to where you had to get rid of him. He's a relatively young guy still, someone that players respect around the league. I don't think Memphis was going to sign LeBron, but people take stock of these sorts of things. And so it it becomes, I think with Jaeger, Memphis was upset that he was kind of openly looking at other jobs and hoping to get other jobs because he felt he was underpaid there. So there's always a little bit more to it than what's out there publicly, but... This just looked odd. And one of the other things that I consider with this, as we're talking about coaches, uh, how quickly things can change. The Clippers and the Grizzlies had the best record in the league about a month ago, maybe a little bit more than a month ago. They both, I remember as the season started, we were kind of talking about which teams to write about. And the Grizzlies jumped out to a really surprising start. And so the Clippers without Chris Paul. And so stuff can change really quickly. And I think a lot of that stuff is injury based. I think this was probably a really hasty move on Memphis's part. But when you look at the reality of it, they've basically been awful since Mike Conley got hurt. And this actually reminds me a lot of the Kings firing Mike Malone when Boogie got sick a couple years ago. They actually had overperformed for a while, had a winning record. Boogie gets sick, and then they go on a losing streak, and then all of a sudden the coach gets fired in the midst of the losing streak. Yeah, and it also makes me think about, uh, with regard to Gasol, like you were saying, do they do they fire the coach over a disagreement with Gasol and then get rid of Gasol too? It makes me think about Darren Williams and the Jazz after Jerry Sloan was fired. They ended up trading uh, Darren Williams within like two weeks of that and sort of getting rid of the coach and the, the superstar player. I mean, there's also there are also other things that uh, could be going into it. So not that there's this is like anything sure, but like go back to 2013. Uh, here's Mark Stein at the time. Like sources say, the Grizzlies feel Hollins, despite Memphis's considerable success over the past three seasons, is not prepared to foster the sort of collaborative relationship with the Grizzlies' new management team, led by majority owner Robert Para and CEO. But yeah, and so the ownership is in flux again in Memphis, and like this is a franchise that like has like had just like a bunch of stuff going on in the front office that makes something like this seem like there might be something else going on too right yeah wherever there's smoke there's there's surely fire behind it one other note on just whether or not memphis has exceeded expectations our boss here at 538 has written uh, nate silver has written before that you can kind of predict nba coach firings just looking at whether a team is beating the las vegas over under win totals uh released before the season so for instance if you're forecast to win 30 games you win 40 games you'd only have a nine percent chance of being fired if you're forecast to win 50 games and you only win 40 games then you'd have a 54 percent chance of being fired but what's really weird here is that according to the westgate superbook memphis's preseason over under was 37.5 wins and based on you know basketball reference, our own system here at 538, they're pretty much on pace for that uh, still 
by the end of the season, and that would give only about a 24% chance of a coaching change. So even from that perspective of looking at are you ahead of where you should be, quote-unquote, based on kind of an external source of expectations, Memphis is not failing that by any stretch of the imagination. None of us expected Memphis to be that great this season, and the irony now is that Conley, they're 0-7 without Mike Conley. And the, the irony with that is that Conley has been awful this year. He's having career-worst numbers. But it tells you about how important he is to that offense and the fact that I think with the exception of the Bulls, the Grizzlies are the worst shooting team in the league in terms of the shots they're taking and the expectation um, in terms of where their shots are coming from and how open they are that they would make those shots. The Grizzlies are second-worst in the league right in front of the Bulls. And so Conley makes a huge difference on that team. You pull him out for seven games, all of a sudden they go on this long losing streak, and then you fire the coach who, frankly, makes somewhat of an example of Marc Gasol, who visibly is not really trying on defense compared to what we've seen from someone who has been a defensive player of the year. So I think it's it's a little bit premature to pull the plug on him, but it also speaks to this idea that I think increasingly these teams have bigger expectations because of what they see happening around the league, all these teams let go of their coaches too early, despite how much success people have had. And I think there are unfair expectations when you throw in max contracts for these guys like Conley and Gasol. That it's just not realistic for some of these smaller markets to win when they have to overpay some of these guys to stay in a market that people are not really showing up to games in some cases. I mean, let's not forget Chandler Parsons, who's played very well this year, but like yeah. that dude has uh, three years left on a four-year $94 million contract too. Um, so again, he's played well, but like they're starting Dylan Brooks, who's a rookie at Oregon, uh, who's played fine for a rookie, but like he shouldn't be playing starters minutes. Like they're starting Mario Chalmers at uh, at point guard. Like And like these are things that like are happening. Like James Ennis is like one of the worst uh, net ratings in the league. Like, and he's getting minutes. Andrew Harrison, like crazy. Like these, these are players that like ideally you're not playing. Like it's like next man up, but like the next man up is like a lower caliber because they have all this money invested in all these dudes. And frankly, it's it's a team that has tried to change its identity, which normally takes at least a season, if not more. You get rid of the grit and grind era. They've got to be the quickest team in NBA history to kind of do these these video segments and these welcome back these these big nice videos for these guys that used to play there. You would think that Zebo and, and Tony Allen were there like 20 years ago with these montages that they had for them. But they're getting over an era that really couldn't shoot and was not athletic and going into an era that is slightly more athletic but still can't shoot and without Mike Conley for a lot of that time and with a disgruntled Marcus Hall. It's not going to work, but I, I'm surprised they didn't give it just a little bit more time to see if there were things that they could salvage or to see if maybe it was just worth dealing Gasol at this point, depending on whether he's trying and whether or not they feel like there's value out there to help them truly start to rebuild. I don't know if they'd acknowledge that mistake this early, but it's very, very clear that they need to they need to do something just to kind of get back on track. Just one more thing on all this is, yeah, like uh, we're ripping on Gasol, like he's like visibly not trying, whatever. Uh, you look at the underlying numbers, though, and like for like you just look at it, it's like it's not the same Gasol. But his effect on shots is still one of the best in the league. Um, so, like, from expectation, like, his effect on, like, effective field goal percentage is minus 6.2% percentage points, which is uh, one of the best in the league. Uh, he's uh, challenged, like, the 13th most shots in the league. Like, he's typically, like, a little bit higher is whatever. But, like, even mailing it, like, he's still good. Like, if he uh, he's in decline and, like, his shooting numbers are down and whatever else. But, like, on defense, like, he's still having, like, a tangible effect on the underlying stuff. Mm-hmm. 
As far as Fisdale goes, he was the second coaching change of the season. Earl Watson, we talked about this at the time, he was fired just a few games into the season from the Phoenix Suns. Uh, so my next question is, who is next on the coaching hot seat? If you look at the biggest shortfalls between what the 538 projections said and what was actually has transpired so far, you'll see that the Clippers are the most disappointing team in terms of points of ELO rating lost. Uh, you've got the Thunder, actually second most disappointing. Minnesota, then Phoenix, then Denver, then Charlotte, then Chicago, then Orlando, then Milwaukee. But I think what's kind of interesting is that there still don't seem to be that many obvious candidates for the next coach to be fired, uh, in part because some of the popular hot seat picks going into the season have been among the teams that have exceeded expectations the most. You're talking about... Indiana with Nate McMillan. You're talking about Stan Van Gundy in Detroit. We spoke about them on the podcast a few uh, weeks ago. Uh, Dwayne Casey in Toronto. These are all guys that maybe could have gone either way going into the season. Alvin Gentry, Jeff Hornacek, uh, and they have actually exceeded expectations. And going back to what we had said, the research being that one of the best predictors is do you fall short of expectations? So who do you guys think would be on your short list, having said that, uh, for maybe the next coach to to see the axe this season? season i i would probably take a look at doc again i I think because the only thing i think might save him a little bit is that they just stripped him of the gm title before uh before the season and so maybe because of that they give him a little bit more time with this the injuries to some extent are out of his control but then again this is a team that went out and got these guys and said okay if we're losing chris paul this is who we want this is who we want and this is who we want and all these guys had a little bit of an injury history. Gallinari had a huge injury history, for instance. And so, you know, there's that and building the team around Blake, which I don't know if they really had a choice after Chris Paul decided he wanted to leave. But, I mean, this is your team, and this is what you have now. And so, Doc, if they continue to lose really badly, Blake comes back, and we'll see what his effort is like when they're completely out of everything. I think he's someone you have to look at. And the one that I think is more interesting and would surprise some people but not others is Jason Kidd in Milwaukee. That's a team now where you've got real expectations because you've got an MVP candidate there. You've got someone who is going to want to stay, uh, who, who said that he wants to stay in Milwaukee, but at the same time, we saw earlier this week, expressed real frustration with the coaching staff, uh, basically saying that I'll mess you up, not using the word mess. Those sorts of tensions happen from time to time, but Giannis, we're so used to him being such a happy-go-lucky player, Milwaukee started the season so well because of how Giannis was playing, and now they're kind of leveling out. And I do think that's the sort of team where you have to be really careful. There's a difference between taking a team from being horrible to average and then trying to take that same team from being average to really good. There are opportunities in the Eastern Conference now. We don't know how much longer LeBron is going to stay in Cleveland or if he's going to stay in the East. You've got a real opportunity to get really, really good really, really quickly. And we're not totally sure yet if Jason Kidd is the guy to take them from step one to step two and also to step three. He's he's gotten them from one to two. But what happens now if Milwaukee doesn't really show vast improvement despite the fact that they've got clearly a top five, top six player who's only 22 years old? Yeah, it does seem like... Uh, the excuses for Milwaukee being only, you know, basically a 500 team, it was a lot easier to look at that team and say, you know, excuse something like that in the past, but they have made moves. They do have kind of an emerging core, at least theoretically, around Giannis, and then Giannis continues to develop. And so, yeah, I think at 10 and 9, you have to say that that is a disappointing place for them to be right now, uh, given everything that we've talked about going into uh, the season. Yeah. 
So mine is like not a dude who's going to be fired imminently. I can't imagine, but it's like Fred Hoiberg. Like something's got to happen at some point. Like the, the the Chicago front office seems to have made his decision on this dude. But like I'm going to read you some recent headlines from the Chicago press. Fred Hoiberg should stop calling timeouts and start letting his Bulls figure it out. More lows reached as Bulls fall to three and fifteen, tying their worst start since two thousand one two thousand two. Jimmy Butler opens up on difficult relationship with Fred Hoiberg, embracing Tom Thibodeau. <laughs> Fred Hoiberg is trying to figure out his team's first quarter woes. I'm still pissed, says Fred Hoiberg, still frustrated by lack of effort and blowout loss. Like, and not just that, like, he's got his players punching, and punching themselves out of the league. Like, it's just like, they're punching each other in the face and, like, knocking each other out. Like, I'm, it's like, that's on the coach. Like... So yes, they want to be as bad as possible this season. Like this is all probably to the to the betterment of their, you know, you know, actuarial like concerns in the lottery, whatever, sure. But like but no, like this is this is this is a problem. This is a problem. Like this it cannot be like this. So like yes, they have to make a decision on Hoiberg at some point of just like yeah, like evidence says come on, man, it's got to be this dude, but like they they've they're riding with him. They they look at that situation and I think they realize they can't do that mostly because they made the completely unpopular decision, or I mean among a lot of people here in Chicago, very unpopular decision to get rid of Thibodeau, who, you know, short of Phil Jackson was probably the winningest coach they've had in Chicago, and if not forever, then definitely in in recent years. So they did that, and then they replaced him with a guy that was boys with, with Gar Foreman because of the Iowa State connection. And now that you've not only not figured it out after the Rose thing. Joe Kim Noah got hurt and everything. You let him go and not able to really get much for either one of them. You obviously let Noah go. You traded Rose but got Robin Lopez, essentially. They they haven't made anything of what they had. And Jimmy Butler, a guy that emerged as a star, and they haven't really made much of any of that. And you replaced him with a guy now. Now if you fire him, it's kind of like, well, at a certain point, you have to point the finger at yourself. And I think that firing Hoiberg would be a way of doing that. And I don't think that their front office is accountable enough to admit that. And so they, they absolutely should. I agree with you. Maybe they should hold on to him so that they can tank this season and then let go of him. I have no clue. But it, it's just a mess of a team. And, I mean, I, I guess they're tanking well, depending. I, I had my best friend is a huge Bulls fan here. And the first couple games they had, because the Bulls were so horrible and showing all this effort, they were like, man, I think the Bulls are too good to be tanking this year. Like, they, they're not going to be able to tank effectively. <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> yeah, it seems like the plan is is decidedly working for the Bulls right now. If you go to their basketball reference page, they have um, uh, they, they show the schedule and sort of green results if, if you win and red results if you lose. And the red bars on their basketball reference page signifying immense blowouts are, are – outnumber anything else that you see on there so uh i guess maybe the only argument for keeping him is just for the for the tank of it and then (laughs) you know after the season reassess things but it's worth noting that no coaches were fired at all uh a season ago and there were a lot of pieces that where people were like how did one of the jobs that has the least job security in sports suddenly become so stable seems like we're kind of making the turn back toward uh instability uh, among coaches so we'll keep an eye on that over the rest of the season okay let's leave things there on the coaching front and move on to our small sample but first a word from another sponsor the days are getting shorter and the weather is finally cooling off and nothing compliments a crisp autumn day quite like a cup of coffee And not just any coffee. I'm talking about coffee that's so delicious, so flavorful, that you realize you've been drinking subpar coffee your whole life. 
Blue Bottle Coffee. Simply put, Blue Bottle has an insane dedication to coffee. They source only the most delicious and sustainable coffee on the planet by working directly with growers all over the world. And talk about taking freshness seriously. You can place your order online, and within 48 hours, your beans are roasted and shipped right to your home. So the beans are at your door at peak freshness. No more sitting on a store shelf for weeks. And you never have to worry about flavor because Blue Bottle has something for everyone's taste buds. From the lighter fruit-forward profiles to the deep chocolatey espressos. So hurry to bluebottlecoffee.com slash lab, that's L-A-B, for $10 off your first coffee subscription order. And while you're there, be sure to check out their digital holiday store because Blue Bottle Coffee makes a great gift. Bluebottlecoffee.com slash lab. That's bluebottlecoffee.com slash lab. All right, we're going to wrap up the show with a segment we like to call Small Sample. As always, this is where we discuss an emerging trend in the league that doesn't have a whole lot of data behind it yet, but might end up being significant before too long. And this week's Small Sample is all about the Portland Trailblazers. So going into the season, I think we talked about this on our season preview. All the questions about this team were about its defense. They had finished in the top 11 in offense, but the bottom 11 in defensive rating in each of the past two seasons. Their best players were sort of all offense, no defense type players and yet somehow we're about 20 games into the season and Portland currently ranks 20th in offensive efficiency and third in defensive efficiency do you guys have any explanation for this what is going on with this Blazers team why are they the opposite of what we thought they'd be well there's some things that I I look at and I first of all I think this is a really great example of just a small sample and something that will probably gravitate back toward the mean at, at some point when you look at the Blazers and what they did a couple of years ago, they were a slightly below average defense. I think it was 2013, 2014. And then when you looked at 14, 15, at the very start of the season, basically the same stage we're at now, the beginning of December, they were top five. And so they went from being slightly uh, bottom half of the league defensively one season to the very next season with basically the same core of guys went to being a top five defense. And I remember talking to Terry Stotts, he's like, oh, you know, we're just working harder. We're communicating better. And I was like, mm, I didn't really buy that. So they they came back to earth a little bit that year. They finished 10th, which is still really good. And I kind of think this could be the same sort of thing, uh, except with a, a bigger jump. And really, when you look at them, they're still playing a pretty conservative style. Their bigs are still basically dropping back in the pick and roll. They still don't really force any turnovers defensively. Uh, teams are not shooting very well from them against the three or, you know, they're not shooting threes very well against them. They close out very well. Um, they're, they're playing a little bit more aggressively in terms of trying to close out. And that's by design that they're doing that. But really it's still a team with CJ McCollum who tries really hard. I don't think is a very good defender. Damian Lillard definitely is not a very good defender, but they, the effort is there. I think the guys around them are okay. Nurkic is okay at the rim. But it's a team that's basically still doing the same things. They they actually gave real thought to a huge overhaul in the offseason. Terry Stotts has said that, but basically said, we decided not to make any wholesale changes because we believe in what we're doing. And I tend to think that when you basically have the same group of guys come in with basically the same strategy and, and a strategy that didn't work the season before at all, I don't tend to think that it's going to result in a night and day difference for a whole season. I know we're part of the way through the season now, but I'd expect them to come back to earth a little bit defensively because I don't really see much that they've totally changed and their roster is still basically the same. Yeah, I mean, I tend to agree. So, like, this came up because uh, I was working on a story on, like, uh, the better defenders in the league this year. 
And I was going through the numbers, and I was just like, what the hell is Dame Lillard doing on this list of like <laughs> people I'm looking at? And so I went, went in, and I just uh, – we have a tool where we can watch all the plays that like certain players defend. So I was looking at what he's doing because uh, his numbers are up. Like Mo Harkless's numbers are way up there, Evan Turner, whatever. These are fine players. Like Dame's obviously not a defender. And you look at the, the shots they're guarding, like Dame's not really involved in too many shots to begin with, so that doesn't really matter that much. But just like watching a bunch of these plays, um, they are relatively open shots. Uh, that just aren't falling. So, I mean, yeah, that's that's maybe eye test thing, but, like, you just look at a couple hundred of them, and, like, yeah, like, th- that's something that probably evens out over the course of a season. So what do we make of their offense? Do you think that that will gravitate more toward what we've seen over the past few years, uh, and then they might actually end up being, like you said, Chris, if they're, like, top 10 in defense or around the 10th uh, place and then also improve the offense, that might end up being a, a pretty good team, even in the West, right? I, I just don't trust them at this point to hold up their defense. I think their offense will go hot and cold because of the guys that run it. And, you know, I wrote a story last year. A lot of Blazers fans did not like where I basically compared the Blazers to NBA Jam because so much of their offense is kind of tied up in those two guys and nobody else. It's a little bit different now that Nurkic is back. He was obviously injured during the playoffs. But I, I just don't I don't see their defense doing this. There, there's some good signs there they they force a lot of mid-range shots with with their with their opponents and they're really doing well at the rim defensively and so i think nurkic being there maybe has had a really good impact uh they actually do pretty well with him off the court as well with vonley and um hell myers leonard is in there sometimes and doing okay as well defensively so they've been probably the biggest surprise in the league defensively this year that teams don't Basically, they have to get everything they're getting one-on-one. I think they basically allow the fewest assists in the league per 100 possessions. And so there's a lot of stuff that when you look at what they're doing seems closely tied to effort, and and maybe that's been a change. They they did overhaul some things with the team this year in terms of they got rid of Alan Crabb right after signing him to that big deal, so maybe that kind of sent a message. But I, I, I tend to think that this team will kind of level out a little bit. They might benefit a little bit in the West just because so many of these teams are banged up. And, and so I wonder if they're going to be one of those teams and the Pelicans are going to be one of those teams that just kind of benefits from the fact that everybody else is so new or so banged up and having to kind of figure stuff out on the fly. I mean, the other thing with the offense is they just aren't getting easy shots. Like by the, uh, the quantified uh, shot, whatever thing that we get through second spectrum, right. uh, they take the hardest shots in the league. And you look at their uh, their passes to shooter, like the guys, their play- playmakers. So the the stats we have on that is uh, no one is generating easy looks for anyone. So like that's what you need out of your point guards, out of your like star perimeter players, or just like pivot big man, whatever. And even if you aren't generating great shots, uh, the best players t- tend to generate good shots for their teammates. Uh, just the way, like the places that you get it, whatever. A lot of times, good players' teammates will. Uh, be in a position to like make a, what looks like to the camera is a hard shot, but is like a, is a good cut or whatever else, and that's like you know the mythical making your teammates better, or whatever. Uh, that's not happening either. Like so, Dame Lillard, like CJ McCollum, like they gotta you know get in there, and to a point, uh, this all goes back to they don't have like that playmaker like like Nick Batum, who they let go a couple seasons ago. And, like, he really – he used to run that offense in crunch time. Like, Dame would be standing over in the corner. Nick Batum would be running it because, like, he generated the best shots. And, like, that's a thing that just – you don't really see with this team right now. Yeah, Lillard only uh, has a 31% assist rate, which, you know, for a guy who's a star point guard, best distributor on the team, probably isn't that high. And then talking about tough shots, C.J. McCollum – 
perennially leads the league in uh, exceeding that quantified shot quality with his actual effective field goal percentage. In other words, he's one of the best shot makers in the league relative to where he takes the shots, but he's also perennially has some of the worst shot selection and takes some of the toughest shots. So it sort of comes out in the wash for him, uh, and, and it's you know it's impossible to say whether he would be a more effective player if he changed his style. Uh, certainly there's, there's value to absorbing some of those hard shots, but it is interesting how one of the two NBA Jam players that they're kind of relying on for their offense is this guy whose MO is just basically taking the hardest shots possible and making them at an incredible rate, but the end result is not an especially efficient shooting percentage compared with what you would expect. If all you knew is, man, he's just really great at shot making and he takes tough shots. Well, I mean, tough, shot making is a thing. Like, so it is with, a thing. With Kyrie, like this year, like it can't be like the heart of a team. We saw like when Kyrie was, you know, on his own, didn't work out too well. But like, yeah, there are hard shots that come up that like need to be made. Like Kyrie's going to make them. He did it up for the Cavs too. But like, it can't it can't be the whole offense. Yeah, it's tough because I feel like there's a part of me that looks at how well they performed this year, how well they did at the end of last year, just to even make the playoffs. But I I look at them and I feel like I'm being too hard on them because they do deserve credit for kind of overcoming the odds of having two really small guys on the perimeter and making this work. The, the idea of having a top five, top three defense so far, despite having guys that you don't think of as good defenders, that's praiseworthy. But I just, I guess part of why I'm so down on them a lot of the time is that even when they do well, I don't see it as particularly sustainable because of the types of shots that they're getting and the types of shots they seek out offensively and the fact that it just doesn't really jibe with what I think a team should look an elite team should look like defensively with two relatively weak players in the backcourt. Even though I see the effort there, it doesn't change the fact of what they are in terms of size and, and their ability to navigate a, a defense. Yeah, I mean it's it's just a problem. Like Shabazz Napier is like one of the most efficient players on your team so far. <laughs> like it, that, that that can't happen. Yeah, you don't. That's need not that. a problem if you're if you're trying to recruit LeBron. Yeah. Okay, so let's leave the Blazers there. I know that uh, we'll keep an eye on them throughout the season because it's pretty rare to see a team do a, a crazy about face with their uh, strengths and weaknesses like this. But again, we'll have to see whether they can keep it up all season long. Like you guys, I'm, I'm kind of doubtful about that. All right, that'll do it for this week's show. Our podcast producers are Tony Chow and Katie Ferguson. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. We also receive production assistance from our intern, Dan Levitt. You can email us at podcast at 538.com. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Whatever your favorite podcasting app is, we're there. We're on Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe at iTunes.com slash 538. And you can also find us in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Wherever you find us, be sure to review and rate the show. It helps others discover the program. For Chris and Kyle, I'm Neil. Thanks for listening and talk to you next time.